Let us worship God. Our first reading is from the prophet Jeremiah, beginning with the eighth chapter. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, that in your will we may discover your peace, through Jesus Christ. Amen. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is this, is the Holy One not in Zion? Is her sovereign not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep 
day and night for the slain of my poor people. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning with the first verse. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? 
Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you had not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despite the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here ends the reading. I remember the first time I was taught never to lie. I was four and standing in Cloanna's kitchen. I hadn't done anything wrong, hadn't lied. I was just on my way outside to play. And as she was preparing lunch, she told me, Jenna, it's important that you never lie. Okay, I said. I didn't know why this was the moment for that lesson. Maybe the big kids had gotten into trouble. Maybe her kids were arguing about who was telling the truth in some I'm telling mom kind of conflict. Whatever it was, I took the lesson to heart. I trusted her lessons, her rules, her justice. Cloanna was a school teacher. She had three children of her own, and at her farm each summer, she watched a handful of more. Hers was one of my favorite places to be. Even now, though the house is well on its way to being reclaimed by the earth, for me, a certain magic remains. It was there I also learned to ride a bike and shuck corn and wash my own hair. It was there I first 
heard about the secret code of cursive and the ingenuity of the lightning rods and the existence of waterbeds. It was there I observed proper etiquette with a sow and the importance of not stepping on an electric fence. Agreeing never to lie was just as essentially added to the list. Still, I also remember the first time I lied. I was also four and in another kitchen. It must have been a weekend because my father was making breakfast. Though his specialty was usually pancakes in the shape of a pig or a bear, on this particular day, he made something different. Something fried and filled with vegetables and not topped with syrup or whipped cream. And my unrefined taste buds were made sharp in silent protest. But I was trained in manners and given seconds. I knew I wouldn't be excused until I finished. My family cleared their dishes and left the kitchen to go about doing other things. I remained sitting at the table trying to summon the will to keep on eating one more bite. Eventually, I got up, put what was left on my plate in the trash, and sat back down. A few moments later, my father entered the kitchen and asked with a smile, Did you finish? Yes, I said. Then he looked in the trash beneath the sink. And I don't think I've ever felt the sting of being in trouble more acutely than when he called what I did a lie. Don't you ever lie to me, he said. Broken agreements and broken trust fill our readings this morning. And so too does the pained and faithful question What meaning do our agreements have to us? How important are they? The prophet Jeremiah is spoken of as someone whose weeping comes from a well of understanding. Just as Moses was there at the beginning, leading the people for 40 years on their way into the promised land, Jeremiah is there at the end. Watching and warning, praying and lamenting for 40 years as the house of God is reclaimed by the earth, the land of promise is lost, and the people scatter in search of safety in the arms of Egypt again. All the while, Jeremiah lives in a middle ground. Between an aggrieved God he follows and a defiant people he loves. When it comes to the Old Testament and the idea of a defiant people, I haven't always taken it very seriously. Were they defiant in a way that mattered really? 
Was it really just about some old obsession about monotheism or a superstition about why things weren't going well? Taking the verses from today on their own, they seem to be a victimized people. And God very easily sounds wrathful and petty and in need of remembering an agreement. Michel Foucault is credited for having suggested that historically authors were only named when it was necessary to find someone to blame. That choosing to author something was inherently risky. The more I look at the surrounding passages in Jeremiah, the more I wonder if this wrathful God is a distraction, a convenient caricature for those on the receiving end of a legitimate critique. I wonder if it's also a protection for an unknown author, for you can't kill God. In the verses leading up to our text, the people are called out for hypocrisy, for using God to get away with murder, for claiming they are safe because they're in God's house, all the while acting abhorrently to others. And in the verses following, the people are described as dishonest even among friends. Their tongue is as sharp as an arrow, They use their mouths to deceive. One speaks to their fellow in friendship, but lays an ambush for him in his heart. Shall I not punish them for such deeds, says God? For the mountains I take up weeping and wailing. For the pastures in the wilderness a dirge. They are laid waste. No one passes through, and no sound of cattle is heard. Birds of the sky and beasts as well have fled and are gone. As the story goes, it is God, some external being or force, that is responsible for the people's demise. And it would make sense that there likely is something beyond their control. But it's also self-evident that if you're going to behave in these ways, The promise of a peaceable kingdom will be no more. You're killing innocent people. You're warring against each other. You're intentionally being deceitful. You're spending your time planning attacks and not tending to trust in the community. Though you have been warned, you're making the earth weep and the animals leave. With God's voice, Jeremiah continues to urge reconsideration. Let not the wise glory in their wisdom. Let not the strong glory in their strength. Let not the rich glory in their riches, but only in this should one glory, in earnest devotion to me. For I, the Holy One, act with kindness, justice, and equity in the world. For in these I delight, says God. In truth, whether for good or ill, we glory in all of those things. In wisdom, in strength, in riches, 
in kindness, justice, and equity. And if we are to take Luke's parable of the dishonest manager to heart, we may even glory in dishonesty as well. Though many attempts have been made to make sense of that parable, even the most generous reading raises questions about ends justifying means. The manager remains dishonest and manipulative, and the character of the debtors and the landowner remains suspect as well. The editorial attempts to make it better, to clarify that honesty really does matter, results in muddier waters. Salman Rushdie wrote a speech in 1990 when he was also unsafe to speak publicly. And he had somebody else give it on his behalf. It was called, Is Nothing Sacred? In it, he talks about the art form of the novel. He describes it as the forum or the stage where debate and fragmented truth get to interact. One of the novel, novelists that he references in that speech is Italo Calvino, who wrote a trilogy called Our Ancestors, which was his attempt to provide a family tree for modern humanity. Calvino describes three figures. One is a Viscount who is bisected on a medieval battlefield and whose two halves live on. One is impossibly evil and the other is improbably good and they are both utterly insufferable. And when they are rejoined, when good and evil are blended back together, only then do they become a human being that can resume life in human society. Just one or the other isn't fit. It isn't human. The second figure is the baron of the trees. He's the ultimate rebel, and he rejects the patriarchal command to eat a bowl of revolting snail soup, and he takes to the trees for the rest of his life. And the third is the non-existent knight. It's an empty suit of armor that keeps itself and keeps to itself and keeps going by willpower and unwavering adherence to the laws of chivalry. Rushdie suggests that these three fables about the inseparability of good and evil, about refusing to accept what one finds revolting, whether that's snail soup or tyranny, and about a literally hollow being sustained only by stultifying quasi-religious code, offer us dreams of ourselves, maps of our inner natures. Using the image of a house, he talks about how critical it is that we be able to share what we are experiencing and hearing. All the contradictions, the various voices and feelings. For as much as I would like to be only good, only truthful, only just and kind, that would not be 
human. Instead of trying to save the scriptures, what is more helpful for me is to be able to see the contradiction, to see the voices within the passage itself debate and interact with each other. It's helpful that this book we have proclaimed holy continues to push back and insist that we see a reflection of what it is to be human and to be able to love the characters even when they behave reprehensibly, to be able to understand and love ourselves more fully. May it be so for you and for me.
as we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
Holy One, you have fed us in silence, in touch, in song, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. Go forth whole people, embracing each fragment of truth and those that you are forced to stop and wonder about. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. Thank you.